Hi, my name is Dr. Warwick Bishop, and today we'll be mapping heart attacks on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Warwick Bishop. Passionate about stopping heart attacks, Warwick has more than a decade of practice as a preventative cardiologist. His aim is to inform, educate, and empower individuals to have the best heart health care. He believes patients get the best care when they have the best understanding. He's the founder and CEO of the Healthy Heart Network, best-selling author of three books. He's been involved with the Australian Heart Foundation and other professional bodies contributing to guidelines, academic papers, and public policy. Warwick's message is prevention is better than cure, and his why is to help people live as well as possible for as long as possible. Hello, Dr. Bishop. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix and happy birthday to you. Oh, thank you, Andrea. It's a pleasure to join. So I was really excited to have you on the podcast because heart attacks are something that, of course, we all fear, and you bring a deep awareness to the subject. So while it might seem remedial, especially for a practitioner audience like we have here, can you share how you explain what a heart attack is to your patients? Well, a heart attack, as you and your audience realize, is a, it's a layman term. It would be used most commonly for someone who's had a fairly significant heart event that takes them to hospital. But to be honest, Andrea, the most common cause of that is coronary artery disease and major artery being blocked. We see this at an extraordinary rate in the Western world, as you're well aware. We have in Australia people dying every several minutes and in the US probably every number of seconds, it is the major cause of death within our communities. And the striking thing is somewhere around 20 to 25% of all heart attacks are occurring in individuals 65 years of age or younger. So when we use the term heart attack, we tend to be leaning towards coronary artery disease. But of course, layman speak would be that anything that sort of puts you in hospital with your heart could be called that. And you mentioned that we're seeing a higher number of people of a younger age than we used to think of who are experiencing coronary artery disease. 
When we think about that, is there a difference in relation to populations, gender, race? Are we seeing different genetic factors impact the rates of disease? So look, I think that's a great question, Andrea. And when you look back over the last two to three decades, what we found and what you will have seen is that our patient cohort, in fact, the entire population, are living longer and longer. And so to a large degree, many of the conditions that we thought of two or three decades ago are being reframed in individuals several years older. So by that, I remember when I began training, we used to think of individuals 60 to 65 years of age as potentially too old for consideration of coronary artery bypass grafting. And these days, we're taking people who are 80, 85, and occasionally even older for consideration. So there's an enormous shift in our expectations, and there's also been an enormous shift in ages with the occurrence of those diseases. So 60 and 65-year-olds, certainly from where I'm sitting, having my birthday today, which is a little bit under 65, that would be a catastrophic event. I still have lots of life to live. I have lots of plans. I'm still very functional. But I would have said to you several decades ago, we'd be thinking about individuals having heart attacks at 55 or thereabouts as young. Now we're starting to think 65 is young. We've changed the landscape a little bit for want of a better term. What are the things that we typically or that you have identified are common triggers for the actual blocking that's occurring in the arteries? Wow, that's almost a Nobel Prize winning question if we could answer <laughs> that in 12 minutes. The thing that I, the thing, Andrea, that I'm deeply passionate about and really believe we need to articulate clearly is the body is fantastically, fabulously and unknowingly complex to our simple minds at this stage. Now, I have patients who have done thorough Google searches and read the internet extensively and know all about coronary artery disease and therefore in a good position to share with me their knowledge about what they know, which is just, I'm always very grateful. And remarkably, these individuals think they've got a key which explains coronary artery disease. They'll tell me it's diet, for example, and you know because they're on a paleo diet, they'll be protected forever. Or they'll tell me it's to do with particle size and, and be absolutely confident that it'll never happen to them. Look, I think the really, really important thing is that we understand that we don't actually understand coronary artery disease. And when you look at arteries, the process occurs in a patchy way. It does not occur homogeneously throughout the arteries. So when we talk about associations, for example, cholesterol, for example, diet, for example, exercise, for example, diabetes, for example, blood pressure. When we talk about these associations, they're associations that affect the body and the blood vessel equally. So why wouldn't these processes equally deposit plaque within the arteries? No, it's really important we step back from it and recognize that it's a patchy process 
a single plaque in the left anterior descending artery of no more than 1.5 centimetres in length can end an individual's life, yet the rest of the arteries can be completely pristine. Now, if you show me someone who can understand that and can identify an individual in the crowd who's got that, I'm all ears. But at the moment, Andrea, we do not understand it. And we kid ourselves that we do. Now, because I've got these people who come along with a lot of background knowledge that they've been able to get from social media and their friend and neighbour next door and so forth, I'll often say to them, look, I love patients who are well-informed because it tells me that you're interested. It's a great starting point. But let me tell you, I'm probably the most experienced and the most qualified person you will meet in this space in your life, and I can tell you hand on heart, I don't understand this process. I just don't understand this process for you as an individual. And if we understand that we don't understand the process, then I think that opens a conversation to, well, if we don't know what's going on inside someone by looking at them on the outside, why don't we just look inside and see if within that individual there is an internal milieu or the ingredients or environment for plaque formation. So, Andrea, I'm an incredibly strong advocate for imaging the arteries to see what's going on. When we know what's going on, it's a different story. I really appreciate how you're speaking about this because I think we live in a day and age and it likely is because of all the noise out there, whether it's on social media or the books or the neighbor, like you referenced, that we think we've found the one key or the one route. And then we're disillusioned when that one thing doesn't cure all. And it is because the body is so beautifully complex and everyone is individual. So we can't make these assumptions that what works for one works for all. And I like how you spoke about the associations that are happening. What's true for each and every individual? How do we recognize that we don't know, but how do we still get empowered as clinicians, but also help our patients to be empowered to have some influence versus control? Because we're not going to have control because we don't know, but where might we have influence? So for you, you're talking about the reality that the imaging of the arteries gives you some influence as a clinician because you can see more, you have more insight are there things that you do with that information and how do you give or empower your patients to have more influence? Look, I'll take a, a quick segue here because really what I'm talking about is primary prevention when I'm talking about imaging. And I think that's probably the space where that question was initially put. And here's the quick segue. I think there's very little out within any medical community and even online with naysayers for the cholesterol hypothesis that if we find high-risk individuals who've had stroke or heart attack, bypass grafting, these individuals benefit from lipid lowering and aspirin. And even the most sceptic of the naysayers on the sideline would accept that these high-risk individuals need therapy. So let's put the secondary prevention population aside and come back to that 
primary prevention population. And this is a fantastically interesting space. And you know as well as I do that we see people with different cholesterol levels and different arteries. So I'll often say to my patients, I see people with high cholesterol and terrible arteries. But I also see people with high cholesterol and clear arteries. And yet equally, I see people with average or low cholesterol and terrible arteries. And I see people with average or low cholesterol and clear arteries. So when many people come to me wanting me to look in the crystal ball and tell them what's going on with their cardiovascular risk based on their cholesterol alone, I explain that to them and say, well, look, I've just explained that cholesterol alone doesn't give us a lot of insight. That's when we can lead into a conversation about using imaging to be more precise about what's going on in that individual. Because for some people, that high cholesterol will deposit within their arteries for various reasons. And I'm happy to talk about those and some of the theories behind that if you like. And for some people, even with low cholesterol, because of the mechanisms involved, cholesterol ends up in their arteries. What we do know, though, from our secondary prevention information, which is high-risk individuals do benefit, is if we can identify high-risk plaque on imaging in a primary prevention setting, then we've got a very good chance of implementing therapy that has a very good opportunity to make a significant and real difference for that person into the future. So to answer your question, Andrea, my real focus on imaging is to get a sense as to whether there's a plaque burden, a coronary atherosclerosis, yes or no, and if it's present, is it mild, moderate or severe to guide the sort of intervention that I'd want to put in place for that individual. There's so many directions I want to go right now. I want to go back to the cholesterol and your understanding or what you would love to share about how we do look at those markers. Because as you said, with the lipid hypothesis and all that we know, we can see that some of what we learned was wrong. Some is right. When is it right? When is it wrong? But I also want to talk about those interventions. So First, let's go to cholesterol, because I know a lot of practitioners are going to want to hear from you about how you use those markers, or maybe not just cholesterol, but cholesterol in relationship to other markers. Is there some way we should be considering cholesterol differently in our evaluations? Look, I don't think so. I think as a predictive variable, cholesterol is not helpful. High cholesterol could be good arteries, could be bad arteries. Low cholesterol could be good arteries, could be bad arteries. So as a variable for predicting prospectively, I don't think it's helpful. That's why imaging is so valuable because once you see what's in the arteries, then you can retrospectively go back and say, based on what we know in the secondary prevention space, then if we lower cholesterol for this individual, we will help. So it's a horse and cart thing, and it's really important to get the idea that cholesterol is at the back. The horse is actually figuring out what's going in the arteries. If we use cholesterol as the horse, we will be poorly guided. So I don't think we can use it well. And what I'd like to talk about just quickly, because it comes up a lot, and may come up a lot with your listeners, is particle size. Because I get some patients who come in having had LDL subfraction analysis done through one or two of the laboratories that are able to provide that. They've paid a lot of extra money for it and they've done it through their 
special or their integrative general practitioner. For those who don't know about particle size who might be listening, LDL can come in different sizes. It's a lipoprotein. It's a ball basically made out of protein with a phosphorus and lipid layer on the outside and carries cholesterol esters on the inside. Now, these balls, these lipoprotein transport particles can come in different sizes. And there's sort of a school of thought that would suggest if you've got large fluffy, they call them, low-dense, large, relatively low-dense particles, then these are relatively protective. And if you've got small, dense particles, these are more atherogenic, more likely to cause plaque. I think there's a little bit of truth behind that, but it's very important to put it into context. And if we, for example, think of the fenestra or the openings within the capillaries, to scale and scale them to, say, the size of a basketball ring, then a large fluffy particle is about the size of a basketball. A small dense particle is about the size of a volleyball. So now imagine we stand on the free throw line. We can shoot hoops with both. And remember that this issue about density is related to radius cubed radius cubed. Density is a radius cubed phenomena, equation basically. So it only takes a small change in radius to get a substantial change in density. And remember, because the fenestra is basically a diameter, the particle is a volume, you're really only looking at the radius or diameter of the particle. And so it doesn't need to be a great deal different. So the really important thing to get about particle size is that large fluffy particles, sure, much better than small dense particles, but they still fall through the hoop without any problem at all. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. What about triglycerides? Well, the reason why I think small dense particles are really problematic is because of the environment that needs to be present for those to occur. And that's really that setting of insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, and linked with that is generally a lowered HDL cholesterol, a raised triglyceride, and these small dense particles. So it's the entire picture that's probably problematic, not just the particles. And people get caught on that. And it's really important to be able to say, look, you know, take a chill pill on the on your large fluffies and small dense. They do occur, and there's probably a subtle difference. But let's focus on the the environment that's associated with small dents and let's not lose sight of the fact that they're actually not that much different in size because radius cubed is part of that equation of density. That was really helpful. And I think that understanding is going to be significant for our listeners to hear. When we think about interventions in these primary cases, are there areas that we can empower our patients to take charge of in their own lives that actually will make a difference in their health outcomes? Well, look, uh, Andrea, you, I, and everyone listening who has any experience clinically knows that the only way you can impact individuals is if they're willing participants. I take medical students from time to time and they sit in with me for an experiential day. I don't let them take notes because I think if they're busy taking notes, they're not getting the feel of 
practice, so I want them to feel it, but I give them a couple of pillars of knowledge I want them to remember, and I ask them at the end of the day, number one is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So the answer to your question is until you've got an engaged individual who believes you actually, you haven't even got to the starting line. Once you've done that, of course, Andrea, then you pull every string and lever and cord and do all the things you possibly can. And I love your matrix. It's far more detailed than my simple view of the world. But I I look at, obviously, cholesterol. I look at weight. I look at blood pressure. Obviously, smoking would be something that you would address, but I take time to speak with people about that respectfully. I even get into meditation and stress because I think those things add to quality of life and people with a better quality of life just seem to have less coronary events. As you know, depression and anxiety are linked to increased rates of coronary events. So once you've got someone who's engaged, then I think my own efforts are to try and deal with as many aspects of that individual as a whole person to help them travel their health journey as well as possible. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Very functional perspective. I could talk to you all day. (laughs) There's a lot we could pull apart here, but it is your birthday and I want to honor that. Is there anything else that you wish you could say to all practitioners that you feel like we are potentially getting wrong and you're seeing the patients after they've been down those paths of the particle size or the this diet or that diet is what would that be that you would say to us to kind of wake us up to thinking differently look there are two things that i would absolutely flag and at the risk of sounding like a broken record number one is that we should just be imaging arteries because while we try and guess using associations we will continue to be wrong and that's to the detriment of our patients. So absolutely, number one, we should routinely image patients. And my own ideal world would see men at 50 go for a calcium score, women at 60, unless there is some other risk enhancer, bad family history, surprisingly elevated cholesterol, pre-diabetes, LP little a, for example. So if there's a risk enhancer, I'd want to do it a little bit earlier. So Absolutely, number one. Here in Australia, we're not imaging much. I've even put together a website to allow patients to access directly calcium scoring. That's virtualheartcheck.com. If your listeners are interested, they're welcome to check that out and see the conversation I have with individuals about that. So I think if we don't have that good data and don't know exactly what's going on in someone's arteries, we can't treat them appropriately. So number one, more imaging. Number two, and this is just bog standard good medicine, let's keep a really close eye on blood pressure. It flies under the radar. It is probably the biggest bang for your buck in terms of therapy. Patients don't have any symptoms from it. We have 24-hour blood pressure monitors, which give us great insight into what the blood pressure is actually doing. And I think it's terribly undertreated, at least here in Australia. I hope you guys are doing a better job, but if you're not, pull up your socks because the dividends on treating blood pressure are just fantastic. It's closely linked to stroke and heart attack. It's closely linked to atrial fibrillation. It's closely linked 
to cardiac failure. It's closely linked to renal failure, and we're seeing more and more data suggesting it's linked to Alzheimer's disease. Treat blood pressure. Get it down. All our medications work superbly well. Check it. Do a monitor. Get a 24-hour appreciation of exactly what's going on and treat it really well, and you will save lives left, right, and center. You won't see them because you're saving lives two or three decades down the line, but feel good about yourself that you've uh, started the right journey for that individual patient. Everything you've said, work makes me want to ask you a whole other set of questions, but we'll have to have another conversation at another time. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, especially so early in the morning and particularly on your birthday. I really appreciate you and all the wisdom and all the information you share with so many people. Thank you so much. That was lovely. Thanks, Andrea. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.